and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Jack Easterby was formerly the executive vice president of football operations for the Houston Texans, where he spent time working as their general manager to help develop their culture and help put them on a path towards sustainable success. Prior to arriving with the Texans, Jack was part of the New England Patriots for a lot of their glory years, where he worked as a character coach and helped the team develop their culture and their systems and their structures, where obviously he worked alongside legends like Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. Prior to that, he worked as a team chaplain for the Kansas City Chiefs and a character coach for the South Carolina Gamecocks. So you've got this person who has a mixture of interest in character, interest in faith, and really what this conversation is all about is his interest in systems and processes and philosophies. And he's all about how you can create consistent models that can help you make better decisions at the organizational level. 
And when you talk to leaders and people in management, it's always interesting to get their perspective on how do you scale a philosophy? How do you scale systems so that ultimately you can mitigate the mistakes that you make? And all of us, whether we are an individual or a massive organization, are in the game or in the business of decision-making. And it'll be clear in this conversation that Jack has thought a lot about what goes into making great decisions and what also gets in the way of making great decisions. So I think you're going you're gonna to find that Jack has a lot of range. He's someone who loves to learn, loves to read, loves to be educated on a multitude of things and learns from different elements of the world, whether it's business, military, or sport. He's always thinking about how a system or organizational structure can develop and perform better. So this is a rich conversation. It is a high level conversation. We are very much in the clouds, but hopefully you enjoy being in the clouds with us today. So here is Jack Easterby. Jack, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, Before we started recording, you were talking about what you love to do and sort of look at an organization holistically and uh, in Houston, the ability to audit that business and try to see all the different elements of it. And I had a different question prepared, but when you said that, I thought about my day yesterday. So yesterday I took my son and my dad to the Washington Commanders game. My family grew up in Washington, D.C. We grew up lifelong diehard fans of a different name of the team. And I was there yesterday surrounded by 40,000 Philadelphia Eagles fans. <laughs> and those that have been around Philadelphia Eagles fans know that they're not exactly like the quietest group of people. And it's just such a brutal experience being a fan of this team. And they're one of the sports teams where I've sort of kept my fandom. My fandom tends to go with relationships when you know people in the sports industry. But that's the one thing that I have unfortunately passed down to my son. And I think about where they are right now as an organization and where Mm. they've been the last 25, 30 years. Mm. And I think the last 25, 30 years here has been such a lack of an audit of the entire business. And like I was explaining it to one of my friends who's from Philly, I'm like, they have missed on everything. It's not just that they've missed on losing. They've missed on the stadium. They've missed on the PR. They've missed on the name change. Like they just miss at so many levels and it's hard to enter that place. And and the, the cancer that it's become is insane to me growing up in Washington when I grew up where you couldn't get into RFK Stadium. And the way that that franchise has crumbled literally breaks my heart as a Washingtonian. So I wasn't planning to start there, but I am because there's hope and there's optimism because they have a new ownership group. And I don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen with that group. But I'm curious for you if you could speak to if you were brought in tomorrow. And to say, all right, like we're going to start with a fresh organization, a fresh audit, and you're going to build the systems and structures that an organization needs. It could be even a non-sports team. It could be a business, but let's focus on a football team. Um, And you were starting tomorrow. Where would you start? Mm. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. And sounds like a passionate Sunday, like most Sundays in the NFL, when you go and root for your team and the fan base is always fired up uh, in any city. And that's what makes Sunday in the NFL so special is a chance to put a product on display, but also to watch the cities rally around each other. And Philly, for sure, right now is one that's got it going. So their fans have always traveled well, uh, no matter if it's a division opponent or a cross country. Um 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, um, you know, when you're taking an evaluation of any business or any team, uh, or in this case, a sports franchise, you know, I think these sports franchises uh, have evolutions, um, both a macro evolution and a micro evolution, meaning that they're evolving uh, within uh, the current regime. And then they've also evolved over time. And you mentioned, um, you know, your fandom of one specific franchise. I think, you um, understanding the goal is to evolve into the next stage that franchise needs uh, is really the first thing, right? Is that every franchise is not going to evolve at the same rate. Every franchise is not at the same place. Every franchise did not have the same history or infrastructure of, uh, of, of things within the franchise. So you're really going to have to be very specific uh, with that franchise to be able to lean in. So generally speaking, I think a lot of people say, well, man, all we have to do is get a coach, right? Or all we have to do is get a quarterback. And so they myopically evaluate and a lot of times uh, put resources towards that evaluation because they believe that they're one thing away. And the truth is that's a fib. You know, no organization is one thing away from being the penultimate organization, both in sports and also in business. So uh, I think the first thing is to, to really push away from that lie, right? To, to, to gather your people, to unite the group and say, hey, we're not one thing away. We've got to be able to create a culture where everything is examined, right? Everything matters. It, it all matters. How we meet matters, how we communicate matters, um, how we hire people, how we onboard people, um, how we let people go matters. And so if you look at successful organizations, um, you know, I think of uh, things like Apple, right, or Chick-fil-A or top businesses uh, that have been able to cross generations and cross news cycles and cross research. You know, they have a way of doing things. Right. And so uh, my opinion is the very first thing you have to do is push back on the idea that you're one decision away and really get everybody really looking closely at how they do things, because it's really more a way of life right? Then it is an action. The action is going to come as you really put your R&D in place uh, and you study the organization. It's a way of life. So you want to really condition every person's mind that being great, being excellent is a way. It's a way of life. It's a way of, uh, of, of existence. Um, and that'll have some uh, natural uh, self-selection of people um, that they'll begin to show uh, kind of where they are and systems that maybe have outdated themselves or potentially need to sh uh, be shaken up or changed. Uh, but that first thing that you need to say in every meeting and every conversation is we're not one thing away, right? And we need to create collective consensus around the, pro the, the situation that it's going to be processes and systems that ultimately fix us. When I hear you say the way, I think of The Mandalorian. And I'm not a massive Star Wars guy, but I liked watching The Mandalorian. And in that show, The Mandalorians have a way. They have a philosophy with which they operate, and they are great soldiers. Uh, but there's this tension that occurs with the main Mandalorian character where The Mandalorian always had a philosophy in a way, and now it's being challenged. And now yeah. they have to think critically and not just follow the how but they actually have to wonder why and be curious mm -hmm. and so i want to uh, push that back to you beyond the philosophy the structure the system how do you know uh if that philosophy and system is up to date the operating system is where it needs to be 
And what does challenging that philosophy or operating system look like for you? That's a great question. That is a great question because I've thought a lot about that uh, now having pushed away from uh, my most recent experience and now being on a board of a couple different businesses and just pushing away and thinking about it. And I, I think that there's two elements to that. I think, first of all, there's a risk mitigation uh, part of that. I think that taking an inventory and evaluating potential risks and thinking about uh, where, you know, as uh, the armor may have holes in it, um, potentially things that could go wrong, evaluating the downside a little bit just to know uh, what you're stepping into as you try to create a mantra or a philosophy or you marry a system. I think any good system, any good program has evaluated all of the downside, evaluate the risk. And I think that people don't like talking about that publicly, um, but I believe that if you're gonna launch something, you wanna say, we've thought about the risk of it. And that actually creates a boldness for everybody who's in the system because- Jack, when- Jack, just to bring this down to earth, uh, cause I'm like, oh, we're in the clouds right now. Let's bring it down to earth. When I hear you say that, I hear you say, what's the worst case scenario here? What, what happens if we fail miserably? Am I hearing that right? When you're, when you're saying mitigating risks? Yeah. Or just listing the potential categories in which failure might occur. Right. So if you're dealing with, um, for example, you mentioned, uh, a name change, you know, if you're looking at, uh, all the lessons that were baked into the cake from the previous name, you know, and what was, Uh, uh, the allegiances and the constituencies and the things that went with that, you would obviously want to list all of the risks that, hey, in launching this new name change, what potentially could be, you know, the the speed bumps or the things that could trip us up to create momentum. Um, And as you look at those, there's also going to be cousins and brothers and sisters of those risks that are going to alert themselves. So naturally, you're going to see, hey, well, we can't do what we just did. But we also can't do the cousin of what we just did or the brother of what we just did. We've got to potentially take all of those risks and all those failures and those informants and allow those to educate us as we go forward. So to me, it's like, hey, there's a huge, huge list of risk that will inform what we should do. And then you want to look at the penultimate prize, the top side, the upside, and go and say, man, what if we really get this right? What will that look like? And how can this thrive and how can whatever system or initiative we're building, how can this just absolutely crush it? And so to me, it becomes a deviation between the penultimate existence and then the bad, the downside, the real risk side. And then as you go back and forth, so you start with the risk, you go to the elite existence and then you come back. And then to my, to, in my experience, the decision is going to be made in that ping pong match as you get back to equilibrium between the two and you have peace with what you've been uh, given or potentially in this case, what you've decided. So um, it's always downside to upside, right? And the idea of taking information in, collecting information on both, and then that usually informs your decision. So bad decisions, bad launches, bad to your point, uh, maybe even a series of decisions, I think are made because both extremes weren't fully evaluated and didn't inform the future decision-making. I think emotion plays a role in that or what causes us not to be able to think about the upside and downside? I think the need, the speed, uh, I think speed sometimes, I think there's an X, Y axis in time. There's a lot of fake deadlines out there right now where people feel the need to answer things or do things uh, in an expedient fashion where maybe they could delay a little bit and make a better uh, make time uh, for themselves to get all the facts on the table. I do think emotion plays 
uh, in it. Um, I think the fact that, you know, there's certain news cycles and other things that people feel the need to, uh, you know, respond to uh, potentially uh, emotionally to declare certain things or to make, um, you know, uh, specific um you know, reactions. Uh, and I think those emotions can be extremely dangerous. Um, I, do, I, I think one of the most challenging things that's going on right now is the rate of change, right? Like the rate of change is so fast. People are changing and evolving uh, both in systems, obviously, and in people within organizations that that rate of change, uh, it creates almost this desire to change for change's sake, right? We know that we won't make the past decisions if we just change. Um, and uh, obviously, uh, that speeds up things up, which references probably, in my opinion, what I just said, the, the number one thing, which is people feel a, a need for speed. And that's not always a good thing. It's interesting. I, I kind of want to stay in sports and stay with the name change because it's pretty universally known. It's it's a simple concept and it is a decision that has an impact. And I'm thinking about let's just use the commanders. All right. This is a team with a rich history and there's a million ways you could have gone about that name change. And they took a year and a half to decide on the commanders. And I'm at the game yesterday and legitimately, Jack, it's a great game. They're playing awesome. Mm -hmm. They're up. They don't play any song after they score a touchdown. And if you follow the Redskins, Hail to the Redskins was a song that everybody knew and they could sing. I don't even know how to chant. Let's go commanders. Like what, what am I chanting as a fan? I have no idea. Meanwhile, the Eagles people, they have their song. They have their EAGLES chant. Uh, as soon as I enter the stadium, like, you know how they operate. And, and I'm thinking about that name change and there was no sense of like, all right, we're going to, we're basically going to clean slate. Like we're going to start fresh which I understand maybe why they would do that, but there was no thought of like the fan experience and interaction. And they brought out a dog, they brought out a mascot, they did all this stuff, but there was literally nothing that was being leveraged to make people rally around this name in, in a strong way. And so in my opinion, and I'll just voice my opinion, it's an awful name and it was a bad decision. I actually believe they should have changed the name. That's a story for another day. But I think there were a million op options that were better than the commanders. The question isn't about whether you think they should have changed it or not. I think the question is more around, I had a general manager say this to me once, really smart guy who said, one of the keys to being a general manager is you have to be aware when you made a mistake, if it's fixable, you need to fix it as quickly as possible. So the speed that you were talking about, we actually need to go fix it post. If it can't be fixed, we need to manage it and mitigate for it. So let's just go to mistakes. When organizations make a mistake, how do they fix and how do they mitigate or manage? How do you go about doing that? Yeah, well, it's funny you say that because you you mentioned of the general manager. I think it's a it's a good line. I think I learned a lot of that from Coach Belichick. He said often uh, in our staff meetings and in other meetings that we needed to be attention or put a lot of attention on our mistakes to be able to make sure that we're uh, admitting them when we need to, uh, both publicly, privately. Um, so that people don't think that we're operating in some sort of facade that we don't make mistakes. I think that's a, a first point. If you want the empathy of those around you, if you want the empathy 
to be uh, a pervading emotion, if you will. Um, I think you need to be able to admit you mess up. That's any entity, right? Any, um, whether it's a CEO or potentially, you know, a, a board of a company or anything, you need to be able to raise your hand and say, hey, we, we fouled off this pitch, right? Because I think that creates further buy-in. Uh, if you posture yourself against a bad decision and try to perpetuate it further, I think what happens is people begin to category, uh, categorize you as out of touch. And there's nothing with the amount of information that's out there right now, there's nothing that can be said worse about a leader than he's out of touch or she's out of touch. I think that's something that, to your point, you you, um, you have to be able to say we messed this up, right? And so um, now the question is, how long do you wait before you say that, right? Mitigation efforts, conversations about things. Um, and to me, those are all evaluated or the decision to... Um, communicate whether or not you're going to mitigate risk or you're going to cut your losses really has to do with the impact of the decision, right? Really wide ranging decisions like the one you're referencing there. Uh, they need to be as slow to act as possible and then as, as slow to react as possible because they're going to affect a lot of things. You're talking about branding. You're talking about a wide vision of the organization. To your point, you're talking about there's a historical element uh, to that specific decision where you're affecting history, you're staking your claim on history. Um, obviously, there's a political element. And so those elements are going to be wide ranging. So your risk mitigation in that situation, you're going to have a lot more uh, daily, weekly, monthly type risk mitigation on that decision before you rethink that decision. There's other decisions, whether it's maybe a player acquisition uh, or potentially a hire that you've made. Uh, that you know is just not working, right? It's just not working. And so to regain the confidence of the group, you need to act and just go in there and say, hey, listen, we missed on this one. It's my fault. You can take personal responsibility for it and say, hey, uh, and sometimes a leader has to fall on the sword, even though it may not be directly their fault. And I think I've experienced that before in my career where, you know, you say, hey, listen, we missed here. And, and that creates a lot of empathy. And that is a great bridge building towards change and getting it right because nobody bats a thousand. Nobody bats a thousand. And so when you're trying to make good decisions, you have to cast a net that hopefully filters out things that are going to be major misses like we just talked about. But I do think in, in your case, uh, what you're asking there specifically is it depends on the impact of the decision. If something's only going to impact a few things and potentially you can get it back right on track pretty quickly, you need to act. If something has a wide ranging impact that potentially has a lot of dominoes that it'll set off, you want to be slower to act on those so that you can uh, gain or regain uh, the confidence of the group in the process. You mentioned Bill Belichick. We're not going to go through this conversation without talking about one of the best coaches in sports history. There's something about him that I'm so fascinated by, which is on one hand, he seems like such a transactional leader. Their mantra is do your job at the Patriots. And even his book that he came out with was do your job. Whereas you go to the Seattle Seahawks, one of the other organizations that has had a ton of success over the last 20 years with uh, um, a head coach and a quarterback in a, in a similar way, not apples to apples, but Pete Carroll's whole thing is like win forever, right? Like win forever uh, seems very much like a transformational leadership. And Pete Carroll is upbeat and saying we want to develop our people holistically. And, and Bill saying, hey, just go and execute, just run your route, do your job. And yet, I'm going to bring it back to Bill here when I hear them mic'd up uh, at the Super Bowl and they win the Super Bowl and I see him go up to Edelman and Brady and all these guys. He's saying, I love you. Mm. 
And for me, someone who likes to study leadership, I'm hearing this like transactional mantra of do your job mixed with this relationship of I love you. And I'm trying to make sense of that because we typically make a binary of transactional and transformational. And I'm I'm also seeing Pete Carroll be criticized by former players by saying like, oh, he said all this stuff, but then he cut the Legion of Boom as soon as we got old, right? And Richard Sherman, I think, was highly critical of, of the culture in Seattle. So you've got this dynamic of transactional and transformational leadership. And I'm thinking about you, where as I prepare for this conversation, it's clear that you love systems and you love processes and you love structures. And then there's this part of you that has this pastoral background that is all about relationship building. So can we use Bill as a proxy here to talk about transactional and transformational leadership and what you observed, witnessed, and saw with him and, and how you think about it for yourself? Yeah, great. A lot of great comments in what you just said here in that question. So I'll try to get to several of them. But um, I think as a as a leader, um, I think one of the things that is is just absolutely cornerstone to good leadership is creating emotional stability in your group. Right. And so um, you want to have like behaviors. Right. You want to have behaviors that are consistent and behaviors within the group that lead to success. And so as you look, any leader, independent of sport or business or anything, if you're looking to uh, have success, you're looking to create like behaviors, behaviors that overlap within different roles and responsibilities so that the behaviors become predictable and on time, uh, and they can actually lead to confidence of the group and execution of what you're trying to do. So when you go to say, we want like behaviors, there's a lot of different ways to get to like behaviors. And I think that what you've seen in those two examples you mentioned, both coaches have been successful. Both coaches have been, um, in my opinion, uh, are, are really high bars in relationship to leadership. Uh, you see two people that really do both of what you said. They have a transformational aspect, right? And they also have a transactional aspect. And I think the question becomes, which one of those really wins out in the end? And I think that you need to start with the idea that I, as a leader, want emotional stability into my group because I believe emotional stability is going to lead to great behavior. Great behavior is going to lead to consistent action. Consistent action is going to lead to good results, right? So if I want to know what we're going to do on third and six, or I want to know what we're going to do when we're relaunching a marketing campaign, I've got to have the like behaviors. I've got to have the consistent actions so that I know that it's probably going to end up okay. So I say all that to say, in my opinion, both of those guys you mentioned have certain transformational elements um, that they uh, initiate almost every day. You know, you mentioned Pete's personality uh, as a jovial communicator. And I think he does an amazing job of creating buy-in in his squad room where every day his audience uh, and his um, coaches and his, obviously his players feel his energy, uh, feel his uh, consistent energy that he brings to that building, uh, which is transformational type of energy. Uh, I think Bill brings a tremendous amount of intellect uh, history, communication uh, of how history uh, uh, has uh, informed his decisions and also has informed his uh, strategies uh, into his squad room every day. And so what you're seeing is two guys 
different personalities. Both are transformational, in my opinion. They are transformational with different methodology. Bill is transformational in a tactical and a technical way uh, through obviously academically uh, stimulating and teaching the entire group. Bill is an amazing teacher. He's a detailed teacher. Uh, he no no detail goes uh, you know un. Uh, finished. Um, every I is dotted, every T is crossed, and he wants that communication uh, to be a source of confidence for the entire group. Bill, I mean, uh, Pete uh, is obviously uh, an energy uh, teacher. He teaches a lot through his energy and through his consistent optimism. And so uh, within being true to themselves, both of them is setting the standard for the group through the transformation of the group in that way. So what they're doing in my opinion, is they're creating the palette for emotional behavior, right? Pete is saying, hey, if you're going to come in here, like you're going to be energized, you're going to be for the team, you're going to have high uh, expectations of other people's energy, we're going to say good things about each other, and we're going to do the right thing. Bill is saying, hey, if you come in here, you're going to know what to do, and we're going to execute it under pressure, and we're going to find out, you know, who knows what to do and who doesn't know what to do, and tactically and technically, that'll reveal itself on Sundays. And so both of them, in my opinion, are transformational. Where I believe it becomes separation uh, is in that transactional part. Um, I believe you don't necessarily uh, have to leave one for the other. I think being transactional at some level is just the nature of the current businesses we live in. You're looking at college sports right now that's having to transact and turn through rosters and turn through programs uh, from a donor perspective, where people are used to a certain way and now it's transacting differently. Um, and so you're seeing some of that uh, start becoming a little more uh, just baked in the cake of that business. And so um, in my opinion, you always want to be transformational and a transformational in a way that's true to yourself, right? True to what you believe that can create emotional palette for decision-making and, and action. Then once you create the emotional stability of the group and you know everyone is stable and can be their best selves and can be uh, the best version of who they are, then you begin to transact in a way that people understand you have the best interest of the group. Uh, so I don't know. I think a lot of people, to your point, feel that myopic focus on one or the other or the choice have the choice to make between the two. Uh, I think it's it's transformational has to be at the top. Then it becomes uh, transactional as you operate the business day to day. And then I think you go back to the philosophy that you mentioned earlier, where you said, how do we onboard? How do we let go of people? We need to think about the human side of it and be direct and let them know that this isn't a charity and that this is a competitive environment and we're trying to be the best we can be. And we're not going to necessarily settle uh, for that. However, uh, you have worked with big organizations there does have to be some jobs that are just maybe mediocre. And mm -hmm. based on all my recon and based on this conversation, I get the sense you probably don't love mediocrity. And I'm thinking of Nick Saban's quote where he says like, you know, people striving for greatness don't love mediocre people and mediocre people don't love those that are striving for greatness. Something along those lines as I butcher his quote. Mm -hmm. When you're in an organization and you know there's a... a I don't even know how many people are in an NFL organization, but let's call it a thousand. Uh, how do you still lead and maybe sort of take what you got 
at a certain spot and just say, you know what? It's fine. The It's not a hole in the organization. It's good enough. How did you manage yourself if you knew that, oh, we could be better there, but maybe that's not the priority? Uh, how do we prioritize the the big things that you can really make an impact on and maybe manage yourself when you knew that there were things that needed to be addressed, but maybe weren't a top priority? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think... Um... You know, I have always looked at organizations as kind of a team of teams, right, where um, whether it's skill specific or job specific, there's certain um, teams that are kind of potted up within the team itself. So if you look at an organization as a whole, as one team, there's several uh, individual units that have to effectively operate within that team for the team to be productive. Right. And so um, if you're looking at which one of the teams uh, maybe has more importance than the other. Um, I do th believe that every team within the team doesn't have the same impact on the overall team success. And right. And so if you're evaluating the entire organization and you're saying, OK, which part of this team is going to be able to make the impact uh, first? That's where you want to make sure that you have flag bearers for your mission, right? Um, I've always said this, and I think this is a very simple phrase that I've tried to, you know, give anyone I've ever led anywhere uh, is it all matters, right? It all matters. And so when you get into that flag bearer position and you're looking at five to six to seven people in an organization that are your flag bearers, you want them communicating to people below them and around them that it all matters, and as they become, you know, really focused on taking their team forward, hopefully that will disseminate to the people around them. Um, if there is a situation where maybe there's not a person that you think is absolutely totally locked in on the current mission or potentially on the evolution uh, of the mission, that goes back to what we just said a little while ago on the micro evolution within an organization uh, that you would evaluate year over year to be able to see um, you know, whether or not they may not fit that uh, going forward. And so I've always said like IQ, EQ, CQ, you know, are great ways to see people's buy-in, right? Their intellectual quotient, their curiosity quotient, their emotional quotient, how they're engaged. And so in my opinion, if you had someone who maybe potentially wasn't fitting uh, as the flag bearer for the future or the evolution that you're trying to uh, uh, educate people on, then you'd want to see more specifically what area don't they fit? Are they not curious enough? Maybe, uh, maybe they're not emotionally poised enough. Maybe they don't understand intellectually what the new version of the franchise or the team looks like. And to me, that's going to help you make a good decision on whether they should be a part of it or not, because uh, sometimes people can be communicated uh, with and, and you can sit them down and say, Hey, Here's a more clear explanation maybe of where we're going and where we need to be and why you're a huge part of that and your position uh, is uh, is a cornerstone to where we want to be in the future. But sometimes when people don't understand that, um, you do have to make a change. Uh, and you can't be afraid to do that. So in my opinion, every organization is going to have five, six, seven really flag bearers, right? Every team uh, within the NFL or within uh, – uh, Major League Baseball or even on smaller roster sizes like the NBA, they're going to have five, six, seven uh, really flag bears for the culture and, and for the mission. And um, those flag bears can come in a lot of different ways, you know, shapes, sizes, positions, tenure. Uh, some can be older, some can be younger, some can have lots of experience, some can have none, no experience. 
Um, but those those flag bearers for the culture all being on the same page, uh, in my opinion, is huge. Uh, and then eventually, if there's a person who's been in a flag bearing position for the old culture, um, you know, they may have to be removed depending on the assessments uh, over time. It all matters. That's a phrase you've now used a couple of times, and I'm going to challenge it a little bit. And it reminds me of when I hear the phrase, how you do anything is how you do everything. Mm. And I sort of challenge that phrase too, uh, because the reality is we all have a certain amount of time in the day and how we prioritize our energy and our time dictates what we focus on. And Mm. for you, it's clear, like you've got this faith background, you've got sport, you've got business. I you know, I talked to Andy Birdsong, who uh, we're both friends with, and he said, you know, he's interested in stocks and hedge funds. And so it's clear that you have a range of interests, but focus, like where do we put our attention? Where do we direct our attention also dictates what gets done. So how do you make sure that you're focused on the right things when you're still taking an approach of it all matters? Yeah, great question. And I do believe that you can, uh, anyone in leadership can fall prey to mantras and phrases that have emptiness to them. Uh, it all matters to me has been a mantra that really sticks hard to, uh, what I believe is cornerstone, uh, in my personal life, which is my faith. I believe, you know, my faith has been an informer for me to decisions and, and things that I've allowed, uh, to, to, uh, really lead me and guide me. And so when I say that you always want to think on the long term uh, in relationship to the longest existence. So if you're talking about, you know, eternity, those are good decisions to make, uh, you know, your faith uh, will inform those. And, and to me, those are uh, at the top, uh, then your family, obviously your relationships that are going to last the longest. Um, and then obviously we all have inner circles of people, uh, and, and different uh, people that advise us and, and give us uh, instruction or potentially mentor us. And so, um, but as you go down that ladder, even though uh, the length of impact may change. So for example, obviously if your faith is eternal and then what you eat for lunch today, obviously is not as important. I still believe getting a good, healthy lunch is important, right? Uh, I think what happens is sometimes when we go down the ladder from, hey, we believe that we have our faith, right? Hey, we believe our family's in good position. Hey, we believe our executive team is in good decision. Then we get down and sometimes we lose bandwidth as we go down that ladder. And at the bottom, we say, well, I'm just going to grab whatever, you know, sort of food that is available to me in the next 15 minutes. And then repetitive action down that ladder without taking a focused approach, uh, in my opinion, leads to regret. Right now, you're uh, maybe having some health challenges or potentially you're not where you want to be with some of your personal goals because down the ladder, you didn't really believe it mattered. You thought, okay, I'm out of emotional bandwidth or intellectual bandwidth or curiosity bandwidth at the bottom. And so maybe I gave in to something I shouldn't have given into. So when I say it all matters to me, it's being able to go down and your point is exactly right. Not everything is gonna matter the same, but being able to go down that ladder with different uh, levels of of impact and get all the way down all of it and say that I want to make good decisions with everything I do. And I think if you look at the best friends in your life or the best mentors or the best decisions that you've made, whether it's an investment or potentially even just uh, a relationship, you're going to look at ones that you vetted very thoroughly, right? Things that you really vetted. And to me, 
when I've looked back at really good decisions I've made, they've been the ones that I've vetted on every level. Um, and the ones that I've missed, I, you know, probably didn't put the time and energy into vetting something maybe that I should have a little deeper. So I say that, uh, you know, to you in response is I don't think it's just a mantra in relationship to something we put on a shirt uh, or something we put on a poster. I think it's about going down that ladder and spending the necessary time and energy. And what I've seen, and you'll like this, I think, to, to answer your real question about is it just a mantra is I think as you go down the ladder, there's some decisions like, let's say, what you eat or exercising every day as an executive or being able to listen to uh, counter opinions that think, you know, sometimes when people challenge you, I think you can decide some of those ahead of time. They don't take as much energy uh, or effort to be able to say, I want to eat healthy and I want to have healthy relationships and I want to you know, read 10 books a, a month or whatever it is. Like you can go down the list and some of those decisions you can make ahead of time to be able to say it still matters. I'm just not deciding it every day, um, which I think is speaks to your point of time. How do you use your time every week, every day, every moment? Um, it's going down that ladder, but understanding some of these decisions we've made ahead of time so they can be good decisions. Yeah. That actually was very clarifying for me when you started talking about friends. Uh, there are friends that are in my life every day and they matter dearly and deeply to me. And I prioritize those relationships. And there are other friends who might have gone to college with me and don't live in the same area, or maybe we just hang out to watch football together and we're not going to go deep and, and, and that might be okay. It doesn't mean that that friend is not a friend. It's just a different kind of friend. And right. so they still matter to me and I'm still there for them when they need me, but it's a different type of relationship. And I think if you shift away from people and go into any decision-making, yeah, there's different types of decision-making. It doesn't mean that this decision is not important. It is, but we also need to make sure we're prioritizing the main things and keeping those things important and then working from there. Am I, am I capturing that perspective? Yeah. And I'll give you an example. That's a fun one from a long time ago that, uh, that I think you'll like, and maybe we can talk about this some is I remember in 2006, I was working for Dave Odom at the men's basketball coach at the university of South Carolina. And, uh, I was running his summer camp, uh, at, uh, the university. And, uh, we had a staff meeting one night and he was talking about scheduling for the coming year, starting to match some of the, um, scheduling. And at that time, uh, home and homes, versus, you know, let's call it power five schools had become a thing, right? Go, we'll play them there. They play us here. It doesn't really matter the order. We're, we're just interested in two years, two games, and playing good opponents to help prepare for the NCAA tournament selection committee. And so he had us do a research project where he said, hey, go find some like opponents where we can play home and home and be able to go to their home and then them come to our home. And it would make sense, meaning it would be a good partnership between both sides, right? And what happened in the next three or four days in our staff meetings and really within the staff was an amazing discussion on what a good partnership looks like in scheduling. 
And I'll never forget it because subjects came up like we were at the University of South Carolina and we were thinking, okay, do we go and play Waco, uh, Baylor and go to Waco? Do we go to NC State? Do we go to Florida State? Do we go to, because us going to Waco and them coming to us is a lot different than us going to, you know, and so we started looking at geographical uh, reciprocation, right? We started looking at conference reciprocation. And so we said, and really it was funny, it was a great informant to, what is a good partnership? And to your point, whether you're looking at friends or you're looking at a, a economic investment and making them be having a partner in a business, or if you're a company and you're saying, hey, do we want to market our product to uh, an NFL team or potentially, you know, making good decisions in how we spend our advertising dollars, you're looking for good partnerships. And I think what happens a lot of times is when you're looking at good partnerships, uh, it's how many factors can you evaluate within a partnership to make sure that you've made a great decision at the end. And so I think um, the at the core of what we're talking about right now is multifactorial decision-making, right? How many decision, how many points can I make? So this friend that I've got a friendship with, to, you, to, to your point, I've got a great business entity and relationship with him, but he may not be a personal friend that I would ask for advice on certain issues, but we've got a great business entity. So I understand where that bound, the boundaries can be drawn in that relationship. And I think what we've become in the current news cycle and the current, a lot of times in the current, um, let's say it subscriber uh, type uh, world that we live in is that we've become very myopic in our evaluation uh, of what potentially will get interest or what potentially might be great in the stock room, but we forget, or excuse me, in the showroom, but we forget about the stock room and all the different levels. And I think that uh, what I learned from Dave Odom and I've learned from Coach Belichick and so many other mentors of mine is the best decisions are made with multifactorial uh, um, inputs and, and as many factors as you can possibly have, they all come to the forefront and then you make a good decision from there. So uh, I'll, that's a scheduling example from two decades ago, but uh, I think it fits into making great decisions. You bring up a lot there, but I'm going to pull on a couple threads. One is if I were to write a, another book, it would either probably be around curiosity or collaboration. And if I think about things that I would like to instill in my kids, it would be curiosity and the ability to collaborate with people. I want to pull on the collaboration thread because as I hear you thinking of partnership with Coach Odom, you're looking for someone to compete with, but we're partnering with them. And if I think about the game I was at yesterday where the Commander Stadium is overrun with Philadelphia Eagles fans, you could make an argument that if you're a Philadelphia Eagle fan, that is amazing and it's incredible, but I would argue it's not actually going to be good for the long-term sustainability of that rivalry. And it actually hurts the rivalry in a lot of ways. And so I want to talk about competitiveness and collaboration or competitiveness and partnership mm. sports. We often think of as a zero sum game. One team wins, the other team loses in business, sometimes companies will get into, oh, you know, we're Apple and we're going after Microsoft and there's that zero sum game. But if you study capitalism and if you study excellence at anything, like we saw it in tennis with Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, considered like right. the three best tennis players sure. maybe ever, and they were all playing against each other and the idea of iron sharpening iron. And so I'm curious to get your perspective on competitiveness and how it relates 
or is associated with partnership or collaboration and how you think about that? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, you know, let's think of it this way. I think one time, I think a lot of sports, uh, you know, executives and or owners have played sports at some point. And so they want to win, right? They want to win the game. They want to win the deal. They want to win. And so that winning attitude is pervasive in all sports decision making, which is not a problem uh, if done the right way. Um, I think what I'd like to do, though, is pivot back to a, a previous point we made and talk about the micro and the macro evolution of every organization and business. And so you mentioned Apple uh, and, and, and Mac there. I think the, uh, the understanding of how your micro evolution as an organization, meaning your next step forward or your next few steps forward, um, may actually overlap with another organization and their macro evaluation, because you won't know their micro because you're not in their doors, I think is an important uh, matrix for every leader, meaning that for that case, um, you know, where the commanders are right now, having interest and having a buzzing fan base uh, or potentially just a buzzing atmosphere um, in a lot of ways is a win because it creates uh, excitement uh, in that stadium. I do believe that they're uh, making the right decisions right now uh, to be able to set the foundation, hopefully, for the future where they're going. But uh, you've got to evaluate the micro, which is what you know so much about because you have all the information, right? So the CEO of Apple, the CEO uh, of any major corporation is going to know all the different uh, upside, downside, restraints, you know, all the different factors to be able to make sure that that micro evolution of where you're trying to go next uh, is definitely in, in stride. And you want to make sure that that does it, uh, that all the, the, let's say the balls are in line to be able to, you know, make the micro work. And sometimes that means losing. And we've seen that in sports, right? Where sometimes a step forward uh, is a step back. Um, uh, and so you don't want to say we want to win, let's say, quote, win at all costs because the understanding of the microevolution uh, in most situations is that we know what's best for us. We're going to stick to what's best for us. And if that overlaps another organization, like in some cases with trade partners in the NFL, or in some cases with companies merging or potentially acquiring another company, um, you know, I've been obviously studying the economy with all that's been going on right now. And with what we have going on with the presidential election, what we have going on with the mild recession or some at least some uh, restrictive uh, atmosphere with the rates, it doesn't make for a great atmosphere for mergers and acquisitions, right? Because you don't have all the information. And so what that leads to is each organization just making these micro improvements without maybe a macro type of move uh, to acquire another organization with um, you know, with with just full out launch uh, towards a better existence. And so uh, I think it, when I say that, I mean, very specifically, if you're leading a company and you're making sure you're making the right decisions for your company, your decision making is going to be based on what you have information wise within your company and maybe some external factors. And so you don't want to make sure you don't want to try to run out and say this is the right decision um, because of what the news of today is or potentially uh, what maybe uh, somebody else is pressing you in to do, uh, even though it may seem like a win, uh, you got to make sure. And there's sometimes there's micro and macro overlap and there's sometimes they don't. And I think that's the, 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 the biggest pressure on the decision maker is when does it when do you just buy a bond? Right. You just know that the market's a little funky. 
I just need to buy a bond? Or when do you say, all right, there's some upside here and I'm going to buy while this is low uh, and be able to, uh, you know, carry it to the top. All right, let's go back to 2006. You're, you know, tasked with trying to figure out where are we going to play South Carolina? Who's a partner for this home and home coach Odom's asking, Hey Jack, what do we do? Let's go to, 2023 now and it's coach Odom's son let's just use coach Odom's son who's coaching at i think vcu and he calls you and says jack we're at vcu and we're trying to figure out who to have a home and home with Mm. how has your answer evolved to that question yeah that's a great question i think that um you know as we've looked at these models right that have been able to shift um in sports Uh, In that particular case, uh, making the NCAA tournament as a win, right? And now more specific metrics that have gone into making the NCAA tournament with how many teams you play in the top 10, how many teams you play in the top 25, how many teams you play in the top 50. Um, I think that quickly uh, versus what used to happen where you're just looking for the win uh, for the power five school. I think now there's so many more metrics, right, that have entered the picture uh, that have informed the models and the models have become the standard. And so, um, you know, I would say uh, those 20 years or the about 20 year gap between the two, uh, the number one difference between those two is the data. Right. Uh, There's no uh, Wizard of Oz behind the screen that says, hey, these are the 64 teams they're going to play. Now you're going into seeing uh, Lenardi's picks be about 100 percent. Right. Because you understand the model and the uh, different uh, strength of schedule uh, things or potentially the, the things that have been laid out before the season and how they've played out during the season. So it obviously projects what's probably going to happen in the postseason. So if I'm talking to Ryan, who, by the way, is I think going to do a great job, did a great job at Utah State, did a great job uh, at UNBC, uh, I think we'll do a great job for them. Uh, It would be, hey, let's be akin to the model, right? And let's look at the model and how the model has played out over the last three to five years and then look at how we fit in the model, right? I think that the model within itself can lead you to bad decisions. So I think you have to look at how you fit in the model and say, okay, where is VCU's best path within this model to be successful? And that's what I was talking about when I say uh, microevolution is I think a lot of people, and this happens a lot in the major sports leagues, they want to be in the postseason, right? They want to be in the postseason. And so they believe postseason or postseason existence equal with success. A lot of times, though, you can get to the first round of the postseason, um, and there's several examples of this in the last 10 years in NFL, where you pop your head up, you get to the wild card round, and you have some success. However, the model at putting you back in the mid-20s and you're picking, and then obviously you know, putting you in a position where you're trying to retain that excellence every year becomes difficult. And so that may not actually be the model till getting late in January and getting to February, Um, it may not be to win right then. And so going back to your VCU question, you want to look at the model in general, then you want to look at the model specific to you and what your pathway is. And then I think the third element is huge. What is the most consistent pathway for us to repeat performance and to be able to be relevant in their case late in March? And so you got the model, you got the best pathway forward in, in art within us. And then you've got the best consistent pathway for us long-term. And I think all three of those need to be talked about. And then hopefully you make a good decision to go schedule a, a big time uh, game on the road and you go win it. 
you brought up data and analytics uh, a bit. And I mentioned Andy Birdsong earlier. So for those that don't know, Andy's an assistant general manager with the Brooklyn Nets. I first met Andy when he was a young whippersnapper with the Atlanta Hawks. I think you met him around that same time period. And it's interesting when they were building the team that they were building in Atlanta, there was such a clear vision around their philosophy and how they wanted to play the types of players they wanted. I always say it's like shopping for groceries. Like they knew exactly the groceries that they were shopping for. So they weren't going to go buy something pretty and nice that looked good that then was going to rot on the shelf and not get eaten. Like they knew exactly the groceries they were shopping for. And I watched them do it, which was really, really cool to watch and build something. Um, but that they they were seeing into the future and they were looking into how basketball would be played going forward. Before them, there was another general manager named Billy Knight. Uh, and Billy was with the Hawks for you know the, the early 2000s. And I remember Billy saying then, we're gonna get five guys that are all six foot eight and can switch and play different roles. And he got them. He got Al Horford, Josh Smith, Josh Childress, Joe Johnson, Marvin Williams. He literally got those five guys. And while he did it, he also missed on Chris Paul and Darren Williams and all these future superstars slash Hall of Famers. And and it's interesting because today's NBA game is is actually the vision that Billy had in the early mm. 2000s, but he was early and mm. he was early to it. And he was somewhat right, but he couldn't quite get the whole picture. And so I think of disruption and timing and how those go hand in hand and Danny Ferry and Andy Birdsong and the, the next generation that came in, they were able to put together something that was right for that time. And it was just a little early, but it wasn't too early. And we hear this in business all the time with technology where things are too early and they never hit the shelf. But if they hit it, if they're the first ones in and they build it and then they are the leaders in the clubhouse, they can take off from there. Let's go to the next decade and we can talk about football, basketball. It doesn't really matter the sport. Uh, what what would you be focused on building now so that you're a little bit early to the game in terms of an organizational structure or a system or a process? Yeah, I think the the, the real simple uh, answer to that is that most organizations right now are realizing the need for a, a comprehensive database, right? Uh, because any overlap you're going to put artificial intelligence or model predictive models into, you need the entire organization to have a database that it saves its historical actions into so that any predictive model has a chance, right? Um, I think of Sam Presti and several other people who have been just ahead of their time uh, in sports leadership by making decisions, whether what he's done with draft capital or uh, Howie Roseman and some, you know, other people who've done things with eating money and, and uh, obviously in baseball, uh, people have been doing this for a long time. You know, they got there by studying historical decision making, the consequences of those decisions, and then obviously the ability to make a similar decision that will play out well. In my opinion, there is no greater um, action in the current climate with sports or business than creating a unified database. Right. Uh, how are whether it's sales documents, whether it's obviously data that you're uh, getting from your business office or in the sports realm from uh, accomplishments or things that are happening from performance um, all the way down to, to weightlifting and movement. Uh, and then obviously game data and other things. I believe that they're the number one thing for any organization right now is to create a self um, a 
uh, just a complete thorough database, uh, 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 almost a, a comprehensive, all-inclusive, um, you know, obviously secure database. And then when you uh, begin to uh, model and put projections in place or potentially build uh, algorithms on top of that database, it has a chance to give you, you know, useful models and, pro and projections. But if you don't have that aggregated data in one spot and for the owner to have everything where he or she or the group can look at it in a way that they can uh, begin to make decisions, then you're going to miss because then what happens is whatever data you do have, you can build off of. And if you're missing different data, so if you have maybe the sports data and you don't have the business data or you have the business data and don't have the sports data, you may make partially good decisions, but not great decisions. And I'll tell you, the, uh, we're seeing with what's going on with Caleb Williams and some of the rumors of him wanting equity. And I, I do believe that all sports uh, businesses are going to have to combine. Uh, there's, you know, right now sports are kind of known in two sections, right? The president or potentially the business ops, and then obviously the football or the basketball or the baseball ops. Um, yeah, I don't think that sports leaders anymore can only enter with one expertise. I believe having multiple expertises and be able to make good decisions uh, is going to be important because those databases are going to be aggregated and they're going to need to be protected and owned by the owner so that they can make great decisions uh, in the future of the organization. So number one thing, get an aggregated database that can help you as technology gets better going forward. And I love what you said about the business and the operation side. So for people that aren't aware, a lot of sports franchises, they have their, their, let's call it basketball, basketball operations, and then they have the business side. And some of the best leaders that I've spoken to on the operation side are the ones that are aware of the business side as well, because they go hand in hand. When I talk about half the stadium being Philadelphia Eagles fans yesterday, that affects the game. It just, it, it just does. And I heard a general manager tell me this once they were going to put billboards up in the city and the general manager wanted to know, well, who's going to be on those billboards and what's the route that those players are taking. And do you want them to see themselves on a billboard on their way home? Or do you want them to see other teammates on that billboard? And how's that going to affect their psyche? And so there are these elements that do overlap and intersect. And, and I agree with you. There's one piece that I have to get to with you um, that we haven't. And it's around character. And you mentioned going to New England and and being there after, you know, they have this awful experience with Aaron Hernandez and going through something like massive that people are pretty aware of what's going on. In Houston, you had the Deshaun Watson situation and there's character stuff there. So as I hear you talk about the data and the aggregate of the data, the one piece that I honestly have no idea how to assess for is character. And and I say that by saying I've been hired by different teams in three different professional sports to interview players at the combine and run their entire interview process. I use psychological assessments. I'm certified for two different psychological assessments. I created my own psychological assessment that I use with my clients. I'm a believer in interviews. I'm a believer in the power of psychological assessments. And I have no clue what the next 10 years are going to bring to identify character. And I don't claim to be the expert on being able to identify character. I know how to get information and data, but I don't know how to tell someone what this person's character is going to be like over the next decade. 
How do you see it? How do you think about it? You've been in the trenches in this work. You've seen it for a long time with your faith work on college campuses. You've seen it with the New England Patriots. You've seen it with the Texans. Um, what's your viewpoint on the future of evaluating for character? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, um, first of all, I do believe that our country just in general is in the greatest need in the history of our country of high character people to be in leadership. You know, I just think that uh, when you're making decisions, whether that's for a state or whether that's for a business or whether it's just for your family, I think that um, high character people are in leadership is never a bad thing. And so I think that we need more high character people who make good decisions, selfless decisions that put the team and the organization or the state or the entity first, putting the team first and, and getting over yourself and being able to look at the greater good uh, so that you can move the organization or the entity forward, uh, I believe will be, uh, it'll be paramount. I just think that you can't, we've seen the other way. We've seen what happens when ego is the leader. Uh, we've seen what happens when someone tries to carry over their performance, maybe in a different area, and they try to transition it into leadership and create that as a catalyst for people to follow them. And it doesn't work. The most sustainable uh, long-term uh, attribute of great leaders is they have consistent character. They show up every day with the same look, the same feel, the same attitude. They can respond in adversity. They know how, how to uh, fix problems quickly without stepping on or stomping on feet and hands. Uh, they know how to have empathy during tragedy. They know how to inspire people uh, when potentially they need inspiration. And so, in my opinion, there is no uh, greater attribute than someone who has character uh, for a leadership position. And I think we need more of that in our country. And I hope we'll get plenty of it uh, as we continue to cycle through uh, some of the leadership leaders who may not may shouldn't be in positions that they've been given. Um, going back to your question on, you know, how do you measure uh, character and how much uh, time and energy and focus uh, has been put into that? Uh, I think uh, one of the things that's very interesting about team building is that each team has it, a different need in specifics in relationship to the character of the people that are there. So, for example, you mentioned Boston, you know, the character of Boston, Boston's an awesome city. I mean, it is an awesome place to live. Our family loved it up there. Uh, we really enjoyed our time in Foxborough for lots of reasons. Uh, there's a lot of great people up there. Um, but Bill knew when he took over uh, Boston, obviously from a weather, from a sports uh, town standpoint, um, he understood that character was going to be uh, a, a cornerstone of his drafting, right? So um, he inherited McGinnis. But when you look at uh, putting people in position early, whether it was Brewski, uh, Troy Brown, um, obviously uh, McGinnis, uh, and then Brady, you know, he began his tenure uh, in New England uh, by having high character people as the examples for the locker room. And I think when you put high character people in place, it begins to be contagious. Good decision-making begins to be contagious and character begins to be contagious. And so um, your point about what specifically, what metric will be used. Um, well, in my opinion, I believe how many people in the organization are trusted based on the basis of their character is a great place to start. 
Because if I'm looking at two people and I'm interviewing them and I don't know them that well, it's going to be very difficult to have a discussion about which one we should choose based on character because I just don't have the amount of information. And so a lot of people in a combine or a lot of people in a small window interview cycle can fool you because you just don't know them that well. But if you look at the organizations they've been a part of and you look at how many people within those organizations are trusted on the basis of their character, and then you look at what those people say, I believe there's a character blockchain that exists a little bit behind the culture, right? And so when you see how people have interacted with high character people uh, over time, that actually shows you more than any sort of personality profile. And so every person throughout the, uh, the tenure of their life or where they've been, they've interacted with people who have, a, have character and have a, uh, attributes uh, of character um, in their lives and have executed char high character decision-making. And so in my opinion, the number one metric that needs to be used is how does this emerging person, potential person, how have they overlapped with high character people or industries or initiatives in the past? How has that been their example or how has been their uh, uh, overlap and how has that gone? And I think about charities, for example, um, you know, we, we say this person, uh, you know, let's say said uh, interview or they're coming in, they're saying, hey, I did a lot of charity work. But when you talk to the CEO of the charity, they were the first one out, the last one or the first one to leave. They wanted a T-shirt and be up front of the picture, but they didn't want to put you know, take their gloves off in the back and really serve when they were there uh, to help the charity. And so just saying, hey, I help charity in the showroom again is great. But what really happened when you were there? So in my opinion, the, the ability to evaluate people who have longstanding, um, you know, high character status is point number one, because then you're going to be able to evaluate whoever else is coming into the organization and how they interact with those people. How did they overlap? How did they have communication with that group? And that'll give you a better litmus test than just a psychological survey that may say, hey, listen, this person's been, you know, successful. I know we need to start wrapping up and I have a million questions, which I figured was going to happen. There's one other piece here that I'm hearing from you. Character in itself is such a hard thing to define. Kind of integrity is another word. Like we know it when we see it, we feel it. That person, someone I can trust, I respect. There are elements that we see with character and integrity. But underneath all that, what I'm hearing from you is consistency. And mm. there's been a common thread throughout the conversation today of valuing consistency and knowing what we're getting. The challenge that we have when evaluating in sports is you're talking about 18 to 23-year-olds or whatever they are. And mm. I know my consistent actions at that age are very different than they were 10 years later. And so you're talking about potential compared to consistency. And like sometimes we over-index on the person that's highly professional, consistent, but they have a ceiling on their potential and, and they, they can't quite reach another level. And so there are other people that have all this potential and they haven't shown the consistency yet. And then when they turn 23, 24, they, the light goes on and they start to be more consistent. And so it's, 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 it's this challenge that anyone who's been involved with any draft process in any sport knows they're the ones that have this potential that you're excited about. And then they're the ones that you know what you're 
you're getting and they're professional, but they're limited in their upside. And so um, just take us inside the war room, so to speak, and how you think about the ones that are consistent, you know, their, their character and you know exactly who they are. And then the ones where it's like, Hey, if, if we can help them mature and develop and learn and grow, like we might be onto something here. How do you, how do you navigate those elements? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, this is a very important thing. And I, maybe we can spend a little time on this because I think this is something that I've learned. And again, I don't know if I've, I'm an expert at it, but I do believe I'm confident in my ability to make decisions on people in relationship to the long term stability of the person. Um, you know, I, I learned something with Bill early on when he was talking uh, uh, to us as a staff about, um, you know, his decision making process. Um he thought a lot about January and the different ways that January football was won um, and really post Thanksgiving football. He thought a lot about that in the construction of his team. And so he knew that there would be several different ways you have to win games in January, right? You have to, uh, you're up a score and you have to run the clock out on offense, right? You're down a score and you got to come back in two minutes. Uh, you got to hit a long field goal in weather. Uh, you've got to be able to recover an onside kick. You got to be, there's all these different things that go into winning high pressure football. And he said the same of the staff, right? You got to be able to make good decisions when you're, uh, everything's going right and it's beautiful outside and it's May and there's not a ton going on. Hey, when you're a staff member and your family is uh, tired and it's December and you got Christmas going on and you've got, you know, you're not, you maybe you're under the weather a little bit and you're you know, the person next, in the cubicle next to you is making you mad. And, you know, there's all these other people that are up for future jobs around you and you're feeling jealous and how can you make good decisions then? And I think that that would be, in my opinion, the number one thing that every leader who wants to make a good decision on a hiring or a draft uh, a pick or a executive uh, vice president job, if you want to make the right selection, you should, without a doubt, fast forward to the highest pressure that that job or potentially that employment opportunity would have. Fast forward till everything's going wrong. Everything is potentially going wrong. And so when you're talking about like a franchise quarterback, it's like, hey, star wide receivers hurt, right? I'm hurt. I've got a bad uh, knee, right? Or a bad ankle, something I can play through, but it's not perfect. Uh, I've got my best, my second best player wants to be traded, right? I've got uh, issues with my offensive coordinator. I've got, you know, okay, who is the person under all those scenarios that can still thrive, still can have the emotional resiliency to stay curious, stay sound in their decision making and stay hungry to be able to show up to work and do a good job? And so, uh, in my opinion, the number one thing there is to fast forward yourself to the highest pressure environment and kind of enter that almost mentally right? And the hypothetical. And then through the questions you ask them, the way you communicate with those around them, um, you can be, you'll be able to tell uh, if you're leaning in and paying really close attention at whether you think that person is going to be executed under that. And then anything that's lighter pressure than that is really just, you know, uh, margins at that point, because you know, you've prepared for the highest level pressure and that that decision is going to be a good one when the heat really gets cut up. That's a really great way for us to close. Uh, Jack, if people want to follow what you all are up to, I know you have a foundation. Um, people can go to the website and check it out. Uh, you're also on 
X or Twitter. I always say it's X or Twitter, whatever that gets going to be called tomorrow. We've talked a lot about trying to predict the future here. I have no idea when this thing goes live, what that app is going to be called. So just follow Jack on whatever that app is called. Uh, so Jack, if people want to follow you there or on the website or anywhere else that you think they should go, uh, let's take a minute to just uh, let people know where they can do that. Yeah, well, I'm thankful for what you just said. You know, you can communicate people with people so easily now uh, on Twitter or X or whatever with good principles and good things. Uh, my family and I have most recently moved to Charlotte. Uh, that's been a good move for us, uh, originally from the Carolinas. And so I've been blessed to be on a couple different boards here and help some companies out and get to know business in this region again and seeing old friends and connecting with people. Um, we've Our family has a foundation, as you mentioned, the Greatest Champion Foundation. We do character initiatives, conferences, materials for people who are looking to do things the right way. Um, and uh, the greatestchampion.org is an easy way to go look at that. But uh, I'm just so blessed to connect with you and other people that are trying to get the right messages out, try to think about these things the right way. Um, you know, it, it, I said this to somebody the other day, probably the greatest challenge to all of us is we have to think about what we think about, right? Like we have to think about what we think about. And so I think, you know, taking time uh, and spending time being reflective on these types of uh, interviews or other uh, ways that we can think differently, take in good content and make sure that we're uh, prepared for whatever the future may hold, I think is incumbent upon every leader. And so I hope this type of interview and others will help people do that as they prepare uh, to be the best version they could be for whoever they're working for and with. Well, you got me thinking about a lot of different things. Uh, I'm on Twitter slash X at Brian Levinson, and you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Jack, this was a blast. You are a thoughtful human, and I think you're just getting started and thinking about how you're thinking about things. So uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, and hopefully we get to uh, interact in person sometime soon. Thank you. Awesome, bro. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. You got to be able to make good decisions when you're uh, everything's going right and it's beautiful outside and it's May and there's not a ton going on. Hey, when you're a staff member and your family is uh, tired and it's December and you got Christmas going on and you've got, you know, you're not, you, maybe you're under the weather a little bit and you're you know, the person next, in the cubicle next to you is making you mad and, you know, there's all these other people that are up for future jobs around you and you're feeling jealous and, how can you make good decisions then? And I think that that would be, in my opinion, the number one thing that every leader who wants to make a good decision on a hiring or a draft uh, a pick or a executive uh, vice president job, if you wanna make the right selection, you should, without a doubt, fast forward to the highest pressure that that job or potentially that employment opportunity would have. 